Hi, and welcome to Prevent This, a podcast of your choice, where we cover everything substance abuse related from prevention to treatment to recovery and everything in between. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a doctor or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding mental health, addiction, or substance abuse. Hello, Katie here with Your Choice, and today on the podcast, we are going to talk about a very important and very sensitive topic. We are going to spend some time talking about suicide um, by running a webinar that we titled An Overview of Suicidality. Now, before we get into the podcast or any of the content in there, I just want to make it known that if you feel you are in crisis, there are free resources out there. So when it comes to suicide, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is a free 24-hour hotline offering help and support to those people that feel that they are in crisis or need immediate assistance. That number is one 800 273-TALK, which is 8255. Your call will be connected to the crisis center nearest you, and as always, if you feel like you are in an emergency, call 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. With that being said, our uh, webinar today will go through an intro. It's really an introduction to the topic of suicide. Um, the trainings are going to discuss current trends, how to talk to- about suicide, what to look for, and some prevention approaches that you can take. Our presenters today are Jason and Megan. Um, with Rosecrans, and Jason has been with Rosecrans since 2011. He oversees substance abuse and behavioral health residential program for adolescents. He is a licensed clinical professional counselor that has worked with children, adolescents, and families in various roles within Rosecrans. He earned his bachelor's degree in psychology from Miami University and his master's degree in marriage and family therapy from the Adler School of Professional Psychology. Megan Cook is currently the Access Coordinator for Adolescent Services at the Rosecrans Griffin Williamson Campus. She oversees the admission department, supervising the access counselors who assess and admit adolescents into behavioral health treatment. Megan has more than 19 years of supervisory and direct care experience in social services. She has worked with adolescents and families in the child welfare system, adults with chronic mental illness, developmental disabilities, and substance abuse issues. Megan has a master's in applied family and child studies from Northern Illinois University and a BSW from Bradley University. She is a licensed social worker as well as a certified alcohol and other drugs counselor, and Megan is the vice president of the DeKalb County Community Mental Health Board. Please welcome Jason and Megan. I really am happy to be presenting today because this topic is hugely important. So my name is Jason Relly. I'm the clinical director of Rosecrans Griffin Williamson, which is a behavioral health residential treatment center for adolescents. And I'm Megan Cook. I'm the admissions coordinator here at Rosecrans Griffin Williamson. So I I think first we wanted to just take a moment to give an overview of um, 
what Megan and I are gonna talk about and plan to cover today. So we're ultimately through this presentation, hoping to heighten awareness and topic, um, knowledge around the topic of suicidality. We do understand that this topic is heavy. Um, we appreciate that so many people have signed up. I see the participants continue to grow um, in the screen and a lot are parents, family or community members, school personnel, other professionals that are joining us today. Suicidality is an important topic and each person that's on the call today brings their own stuff with them to the talk. We all have some level of experience, education, values, opinions on the topic. And what I ask is that for this hour, we remain open to the idea of increasing our own personal awareness on the topic of suicide. One of the reasons that I have a strong passion for it is because I do have personal connections to the topic um, and professional connections in regards to suicidality. We know this topic touches many lives and at 11.30 in the morning, on a virtual forum with so many people, um, a lot of that human element is removed, but it still remains very real. And so I, I think understanding that, you know, Megan and I have done this presentation um, several times for several years at this point. Um, and, you know, we're gonna interplay a little bit with one another. We're gonna try to deliver you, deliver you a ton of information on the topic and jam pack, you know, the 45 to 50 minutes as much as possible. Uh, so this is just a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. So we're generally going to be covering what, what is or how is suicide defined, um, any current statistics, the social impact, uh, considerations to language, the warning signs, risk factors, and ultimately how do we as a group make an impact. So really taking a moment to define suicide according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, we have a, a, a mix of audience members today. So many times uh, when we've spoken on the topic, we've gotten several questions at the beginning to define or orient us to what exactly we're talking about since there's so many different things out there on this topic. And today just clarifying the piece of the definition um, that ex explains and says, behavior with an intent to die. So ultimately that's what differentiates suicide from other avenues of non-suicidal self-injury, self-harm. So today in today's presentation, we are really talking about the behaviors or actions that have the intent to die. Suicide and suicide prevention have been much more openly discussed over the past several years. Um, while this open discussion is a positive thing and leads to reduction of stigma, it is likely due in part to the necessity based on the overwhelming data that we are faced with. The Centers for Disease Control produced data in June of 2018, demonstrating an overall increase in the number of suicides nationwide in all but one state, um, and this was over a time frame of 1999 to 2016. The one state, um, Nevada, showed a 1% decrease. In Illinois, over that same period of time, there was a 19 to 30% increase in, in suicide rates. When we think 
about suicide and who is at risk, we all may have some preconceived notions um, based on things that we've heard, based on things that we've seen, and who is who is at risk. What we do know is that adults over the age of 45, males, American Indians, and Native Alaskans are all groups of people at the absolute highest risk. We also know that members of the LGBTQ community, those serving in the military and veterans are at high risk. And we know that for individuals aged 10 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death for the CDC. Additionally, there are gender disparities. We know that data indicates that men choose more lethal means while women have a higher incidence of reporting ideation prior to an attempt. That being said, we also have to consider that transgender and non-binary individuals experience suicide ideation per the Trevor Project at a rate of four and a half times that of cisgender individuals. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of um, very high numbers that are very concern concerning. And they all just go to demonstrate that there are people who fit into several risk categories. It's important to be aware of this but it's also important to know that being in a high-risk population does not indicate that, that someone will die by suicide or that they will ever even feel suicidal. So looking at and setting the stage for the topic means looking at a lot of these statistics and numbers that we're gonna tell you, um, as Megan alluded to, it does not tell the full story of what's going on with this topic. And most of us probably are aware if we're on this particular um, presentation that these are alarming rates. So as Megan said, they continue to, you know, our awareness increases. However, rates also continue to go up. Um, the process also is something that we want to really look at with psychiatric crisis and looking at those rates and how they interplay with some of our resources that are directly available to us. Um, so a psychiatric crisis is anytime someone demonstrates uh, that they're a harm to themselves or someone else. Many people, probably some of you on this call have gone to emergency departments or emergency rooms at your local hospitals. And studies continue to show that there are increases in climbs in those rates of ED visits generally related to mental health or psychiatric crisis. And some studies are showing 30% increases or even more. Um, suicidal ideation amongst adolescents who go to the ED on those visits have increased 2.5 fold. And that was a study that came out in the Journal of American Academy of Pediatrics with a data from 2011 to 2015. So what's very interesting about a lot of those statistics is that although we're going to the ED, it doesn't mean that we're getting uh, mental health treatment, we're not, we may not be getting screening and our visits are getting longer and longer. So in that particular study, 16% of the individuals were seen by someone for a mental health screening. Um, other studies have similar data. There was data in the Journal of Emergency Medicine from 2009 to 2015 that showed that pediatric mental health visits to the uh, emergency department increased 56% and they increased in adults 41%. So, you know, why is that helpful or, or what do we know? We know that means that people are viewing the ED as a natural resource in your environment, somewhere you can go when in crisis. 
and a realistic resource for you. However, with that, we also know there isn't exactly a framework in all of them to be set up to, to help you in that moment. So you may you know, experience long wait times. You may experience not seeing a mental health professional. So there's more that we can do. Um, so with that being said, you know, I want to reiterate that it doesn't mean that you will always be seen by someone who's going to be providing you with a hospitalization or a direct link to community-based resources. So if that is what you're seeking out, not just immediate safety of an individual, but you're looking for additional resources from those visits, you, you have to ask those questions and, and ask to be screened by someone who, you know, is working in crisis in that ED or if they have those resources available to you. Thank you. Thank you for that information and, and update. Um, some other additional current statistics and information that we know, as you can see, based on this graphic before you, there are many factors that might contribute to, su to suicide, uh, many precipitants. These are obviously factors that are different for everyone. Um, what I do want to point out and, and what may be surprising is the 42% number there, um, the, the leading identified precipitant to suicide is relationship problems. Think about your relationships for a moment. Um, this doesn't solely mean romantic relationships, but we have relationships with our friends, our coworkers, our students, supervisors, family members, and so many other people. We cannot underestimate the significance of any relationship for others. Um, we work with adolescents and, and while any of us who work with adolescents or have adolescent or young adult children of our own, um, it's very easy to maybe make light of young love or the, the importance of social interactions or time with, with their friends. We must um, make time or in, make it a point to acknowledge and validate these relationships. This doesn't mean we have to agree uh, with all of them but we do have to acknowledge that the loss of that relationship, especially for a young person or an adult, a young adult um, could be dev devastating. Imagine then a situation, if you're looking at some of the other precipitants in this, in this graphic, imagine a situation in which someone loses a job that they really enjoy and it, it's an unexpected loss. When suffering, while suffering that financial loss, they're also gonna be suffering the loss of the relationships that they had with supervisors, colleagues, and potentially customers as well. In a scenario like this, the number of potential precipitants increases suddenly and all at once. So some of those precipitants also, you know, the relationship idea, there is a relationship that also exists with society, social media, media at large, and, and celebrities. I, I don't know if it would come as a shock to many people, but um, after Robin Williams' uh, death by suicide and passing, um, research indicated that in the four months after his death, suicide rates actually increased 10%. And that was data as compared to 1999 through 2015. So that's a pretty significant increase. Other countries have done similar studies and shown um, that it's the same effect when celebrities pass or there's a highly publicized um, death by suicide. There's reported clusters, social contagion effect that comes into place after a celebrity death. And it's not necessarily a new phenomenon. 
I think people think, oh, we're, you know, this is new because of the reality TV and the lives that we lead. But a lot of uh, newer articles have come out that said there was a 12% increase in suicide rates the month of Marilyn Monroe's death in 1962. And some people may be thinking, oh, Marilyn Monroe's death. It was first headlined and categorized as a death by suicide. And so those 12% increases in that same month it is pretty alarming before then um, it, it was changed to overdose. So there's a lot of really important points that are housed within that. Social contagions exist in communities. It is with celebrities, but it's also beyond celebrity influence. Absolutely, it could be prestige bias. Um, we think about celebrities and the idea that, oh my goodness, the genie from Aladdin died by suicide, then why not me? Why not myself? Um, we often assume those that we, we put on pedestals or are living a celebrity life are living or having better lives than us because we don't know the other piece. I think about someone like Anthony Bourdain um, who did openly speak about some of his struggles, but most individuals or, or most people I talked to knew him as the guy who traveled around to exotic places, got to eat, um, anything that he wanted, and really just had an episodic snapshot of what his life was. If we only saw that 30-minute hour snapshot, we would think, oh my goodness, how awesome. However, he died by suicide, and start, people start to think about that and weigh what's going on in their life versus, oh my goodness, he had all of this going on. And, and sometimes that's the stuff that we see with our uh, children, our clients, um, community members, students, and, and really what it should act as is a call to have a conversation and be willing to increase our understanding and awareness that ultimately we know what they tell us and we may not know everything going on. And I know a lot of people like to think, I know my clients, I know my child. Um, ask those questions. And we're gonna say that so many times during this presentation. Um, beyond kind of that social celebrity impact, it's really any exposure to a death by suicide that has an increase in rates. Um, effects have been seen in institutions like schools, hospitals, um, exposure by media as, at a higher rate, we're getting information faster. Details spread instantaneously and right away. You can, you know, be on texting or, or uh, you know, messaging someone that this has happened before, you know, anyone else knows. So it's very quick in those moments. So what we need to continue to do is be aware of who may have predisposed thoughts about suicide, who may be really impacted by the relationships they've had with others, their schoolmates, celebrities when this happens, and, and be willing to see how they're doing. Check in with them. Um, I, I've had the, the chance and an opportunity to respond to schools um, and been involved after death by suicide. And I think uh, the importance for me was being able to provide support to anyone that needed it in that moment. And many teachers, administrators, they uh, came to me after and said, hey, why is so-and-so coming? Why is this student? They didn't even know him. They're not, a, you know, the family's not coming down or it's, it's people that we didn't expect. And a, a lot of times really in talking to people, it's because it became a realistic option for them. 
let's say it was someone who they looked up to or thought was, oh my goodness, this person is getting good grades or has a lot of social connections. And this happened for them. Again, what about me? Maybe this is real and tangible for me. And then suicide becomes even more of a real option because you're seeing it. Uh, with, with that contagion idea and, and learning information quickly from media, that's why the World Health Organization now has stepped in and media coverage has changed with regards to this topic. And I think this is really important because it hasn't changed in every um, uh, part of media, but there are regulations and guidelines now. So it's important to report in a responsible manner. And I'm not saying that anyone on this training is reporting, but even in talking about things, understand how the media is talking about this topic of suicide and what we may be able to, you know, be appropriate sharing or not and how it has an impact on someone. So there's a great table if anyone was interested. Uh, it's not on the slide, but reporting on suicide.org. They have recommendations for how media should portray some of these things. Um, it goes into examples of what to avoid. So we wanna be aware of um, not describing the methods or means by which someone used, not sharing intimate details about what happened or the individual that died, and um, definitely not sharing contents of a note. And I know that used to happen where uh, they would put the note right in the media, you know, right in the news story, and, and we really want to avoid personalizing some of that. All of these guidelines, though, the contagion effect, um, it demonstrates the importance of us needing to remain grounded as we're on this and understand that suicidality um, is not something we want people to then over-identify with, personalize, or even worse, normalize and believe oh, this happens all the time. This is a common occurrence because I'm seeing it in this celebrity or this news article. We want people to understand that this has to be talked about and managed. Uh, there is so much complexity. Uh, so we're trying to balance psychoeducation, appropriate portrayal, attempts to help, and the possibility then in the back of our minds that what we do or say may do harm. So a perfect example or an okay, a good example of this is a television show, uh, 13 Reasons Why. And I, and I will say, um, just to be vulnerable and honest, because that's what we're doing with this topic today, is that I have not watched the show, but this is just research that has existed. Uh, one study that came out in the Journal of American Academy of Child and uh, Adolescent Psychiatry noted that there was an association between the release of the show and increased suicide rates of 28.9% in youth ages 10 to 17 in April of 2017. And that was compared to five-year data. So that was a high uh, rate. So um, other studies have also said that the numbers aren't due to the show. Uh, there have been other definitive studies about the portrayal of suicide that have increased risks and showed that correlation. Another study of that same show um, of the second season demonstrated mixed results. On one hand, if uh, you, you um, did not watch the second season all the way through, you didn't watch it, you had predisposed thoughts of suicide, uh, you may have an increased risk levels. The same research showed that if you watched it, all the way through the second season, that particular show, you might have felt more comfortable talking about the topic. You felt that you wanted to support and help others more 
with um, if they were managing suicidal thoughts or ideations. And um, they felt more comfortable going to others and advocating for themselves about the topic. A warning label was also added that second season. So really what I'm saying with all that mixed data on one particular show is that it means it's not very clear. There are so many variables as Megan alluded to when talking about this topic of suicide. And it's important for us to understand how we can best promote conversation, resources, and just be aware of potential risks so that we know when to intervene and talk to someone. So I think if nothing else um, from the presentation today, one of my big takeaways for people or my hopes is that we have the ability to be reverent towards the lives of those that have died by suicide. Um, one, through reporting as we just talked about, but also understanding that much like others that have lost their battle with cancer or tragically died in a car accident, we can understand that a death by suicide is also a life lost Therefore, it's really important that the language we use matters. So on the screen uh, right now are some commonly used terms um, and you'll see them crossed out. And honestly, we can look in newspaper headlines, articles, uh, scholarly journals, which I often do look up and see there are tens of thousands still to this day being published, um, conversations we have with others. Each one of these terms is used. And I think the most important thing uh, to remember when using language around the topic is that we want to promote a reduction of stigma so that we can have more conversations and feel more comfortable about this topic. So why that is important. Um, just looking at the first one, if we say a failed attempt, it's ultimately saying without saying that, you know, the person is a failure they're already feeling down and depressed and they cannot even end their life correctly. And that's not something we want to give a message to someone who's just had a pretty traumatic event or incident where they made a suicide attempt. Moving to the second one, successful attempt. Similarly, on the other side, it's um, troubling that, you know, we qualify an attempt as overtly positive and that it was successful because others hear that. They think of it then as, oh, an accomplishment, something that I can strive to do. And even with this idea of failed and successful attempt, we don't need to qualify an attempt. An attempt is just that. It's an attempt. Um, if that attempt resulted in someone passing or dying by suicide, then that's how we would note it, as a death. Um, it's really important to uh, committed and completed. Uh, a lot of individuals, and I've, you know, talked to some report, you know, and say committed suicide. Uh, why we're not okay with that one is because immediately it goes to a place of talking about like sin or crime and other things in society we commit. And those aren't exactly things that many people are talking about at the dinner table or speak to the respect of a life lost. So we want to be aware of that, as well as when we're talking about completed. And I do know that completed is something that recently has been taught in master's programs or other trainings or schools. And um, it's something that's more acceptable than committed, but we can absolutely do better than that. So this idea of completed, 
when I think about it, it means, oh, I just completed this marathon or this project I was really working hard on. I set out objectives and goals and I did it. So uh, in completing, it, it really speaks a poor message to a couple people. To those individuals also predisposed in thinking about it because what it says is that, oh, maybe I can complete it too. I haven't done anything right, but I wanna be you know, successful and complete something. It also doesn't do a lot to, to provide respect to those grieving a loss. Because if, if someone says, oh, that so-and-so completed suicide, it, it frames it in such a positive way that those family members or loved ones are starting to think about some of that. And um, in a way that's like, well, no, I didn't want them to set out to complete that. So uh, there is a better way. And, and that better way is housed in this slide. And it's really important to know that there have been many awkward moments uh, where I have in meetings or talking to my own parents or family members, I've actually corrected people. And I don't expect any perfection because these are the things that we all say day to day, it's normal. But I, I do want us to understand that th this is common for these things to be said. Um, and when I correct them, I give them the, the appropriate terminology, which I've used a couple times here, which is died by suicide. So I, I do want us to be aware that that is the preferred thing to say. So death by suicide or died by suicide. Again, it's the same way we would report on someone who lost the battle of cancer or passed in an accident in some way. We wanna provide them the same respect. So up until this point, we have identified um, that suicide is a vital topic to discuss and educate ourselves on. We know that rates are increasing and they're increasing across demographics for those with and for those without mental health diagnoses for many different minority and marginalized populations. And I would think that each of us in, involved in this presentation today know someone in, and or care about someone who falls into at least one of those risk categories. As with many topics that are initially difficult to talk about in the open, the more we educate our, ourselves, the easier it becomes to discuss, to assess, and make an impact in the improvement of said topic. With those pointers that we just had um, with Jason as far as language, I feel like that helps empower people to know the appropriate ways to speak on a topic, to know what is, what isn't accepted. And, and both of us, you know, do make those attempts to appropriately correct and educate individuals on the appropriate and most um, reverent language to use in regards to talking about this topic. And we hope that you become empowered in the same way. Um, suicidality is, is no different um, than talking about any difficult topic, um, but knowing where to turn for the information is critical. I do see that there's an increase um, in our ability to, to talk about the information and to be able to access it. I've seen um, mental health first aid trainings, many of which are offered free of service, especially as we're able to do more trainings virtual, the topic of suicidality and prevention have definitely been more prevalent and more easily available. There are additional screening tools 
and, and again, many of this is available at no cost um, to the individual, whether that be the family, school professional, or clinical professional. Please do continue to seek professional help and intervention if someone is expressing those thoughts of wanting to harm themselves in the moment. If you are doing a screening or hearing something from someone who, who is making those statements. So in um, Megan, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, the resources and what different kinds, and I know we'll go into it a little more deeply, but I think, at the baseline and foundation, it's really important to understand that we need to, as individuals, build a network of support and understanding of resources in your particular area that are going to be helpful to you. Maybe it's a crisis line, maybe it's a, a mobile crisis response uh, system or community outreach that um, are already built in, therapy, support groups. Um, what we do know is that there's a huge disparity among groups. Uh, when they don't know resources and have geographic limitations or inability to access specific resources. So um, I encourage everyone to familiarize yourself with what is ultimately available in your area. If suicide does become a reality for someone you love, uh, you, you know, you work with, um, and also really think about what the realistic barriers and potential solutions are if there are limitations to that person remaining safe or getting to appointments or something like that. I often think about it as, um, you know, we don't start looking at some of those things until the time it comes up. And um, then it, it may be, you know, too late. So we want to be preventative much like a fire safety plan where we already know where to meet outside the house if there was a fire or what to do, you know, to stop, drop and roll, things that were talked about, we practice. We also with this topic want to know where to go when suicide becomes a reality. Pardon me. Technology um, is also a, a significant piece of this. Um, the internet is certainly blamed for many negative things in, in communication. However, there are also many resources available that promote positivity and well-being. There's a group called Live Through This, who celebrates those who have survived suicide attempts. There are support groups online through many 12-step groups, including Emotions Anonymous, and there are other groups, pages, and events outlined to provide outreach and support to those in need. My personal favorite um, tool to use in this manner with the use of technology is the crisis text line. This is a free service available to anyone with a phone with texting capabilities or with internet access. To use, you simply text HOME to 741741 and that graphic is actually on this slide, the red box there. A trained crisis counselor will then reply to your text. You can access this service um, again through their, their Facebook page or through your phone. The text line has created algorithms that will decipher a texter's needs based on the words that they are using to, to reach out. They will identify the order of, of crisis and triage those responses. They can also dispatch emergency services to the area that the texture is in, depending upon the, the nature of the responses that they're getting. 
Since its inception in 2013, the Crisis Text Line has had over 5 million conversations with individuals in need. I know people who have used this service at times when no one else is around in the middle of the night um, or when they are just feeling isolated and uncomfortable talking to someone else. And they've found it quite helpful, uh, perhaps even life-saving. COVID-19 is, is upon us. Um, we are all uh, submersed into so much information and, and overload about the pandemic. Um, we cannot underestimate the impact that it's had on the world from the loss of life to the loss of employment, social isolation, constant fear and anxiety of, of infection. Um, all of us have been impacted in one way or another. Um, those who have been receiving behavioral health treatment may have experienced an interruption in services due to the pandemic and the need for, for so social isolation and distancing, um, or they may have experienced a change in their telehealth services. Not everyone is comfortable or trusting of receiving behavioral health care or any health care through an online format or over the telephone. And some just aren't familiar with how to use those technologies. Everyone doesn't have, everyone doesn't have access to those services. Um, although Jason and I are hopeful that you're able to connect with us today, we'd much rather be able to be seeing your faces, to interact, to ask questions in real time. Um, we can't replace that human experience for, for individuals. Um, however, we have seen some definite increases um, in, in positive outcomes as a result of our need to, to survive these past seven months. Through the, the delivery of telehealth services, many people have become more connected. This training would not have reached an audience of over 400 individuals if we were limited in, in location. Some people with mobility, transportation, or health issues are now able to receive services who may have been able to or unable to in the past. We will talk about some of the warning signs of suicide. Um, these will vary from person to person, moment to moment, much like precipitants do. They may be direct or indirect, yet one thing remains constant, and that is that when you observe or hear a warning sign, you should always ask follow-up questions. We do have four major uh, types of warning signs. And um, you should also keep in mind that someone might demonstrate warning signs in all categories of various you know, combinations, and it might, might, might mean nothing. You know, they may still not be experiencing suicidality. You should always just ask those additional questions. Um, there are health and physical warning signs that can uh, be, be a symptom of a health problem, may require um, some medical follow-up. So these are things that while they might be an indicator of potential um, suicidality, could also be indicators of a medical problem. Always follow up with additional questions and also always ask um, for the advice of a professional. Emotional warning signs can just be moods or feelings. Um, it never hurts to ask how someone is feeling. We've all had days where we're overly sad or, or angry for some reason. 
Um, I think most of us have experienced isolation in, in some way, shape or form over the past seven months in particular. Checking in on each other is crucial, especially in times like this. Behavioral warning signs are going to also um, vary person to person. They may be much more direct. Um, for example, if you have found a suicide note, you should definitely not try to manage that situation without professional intervention and assistance. One potential warning sign, um, however, is when someone begins to give away their property. However, this does not mean that you have to intervene. It means you have to ask more questions. Several years ago, someone I supervised had informed me that she was going to be moving out of state and therefore um, leaving the company. She had several large canvases that she had hung in her office and rather than moving them, had offered them to several of her coworkers. Out of true concern, one of her coworkers approached me and said that she was very concerned as she knew that this was a, a potential warning sign of suicide. Well, we were able to, to explain this through, you know, informing that individual that she was going to be moving and, and have a little nervous laughter at that event. The fact that that staff member took the time to stop and ask more questions to make sure there wasn't an additional reason of concern showed her understanding and level of commitment to safety. Conversational warning signs are, are just that. It's what you're hearing, what people are saying. Sometimes these are figures of speech. Um, people, people say flippant things. Um, however, if you don't ask, you will never know what their intent is. As Jason mentioned um, at the onset of the training, the intent is truly the, the concern um, and where we need to make that decision to, to follow up. There are additionally three categories of risk factors. These are characteristics or circumstances that may increase an individual's potential for harm. Risk factors can be um, related to physical or behavioral health. And so with warning signs and risk factors, Megan, I think what's been helpful with individuals that I have supervised to conceptualize the difference a little bit is to think about something tangible like a heart attack. Um, a risk factor, right, for a heart attack uh, would be something that indicates the person is ultimately that at higher risk for that. The same as suicide, a suicide risk factor, they are at higher risk. So we know for a heart attack, it's tobacco use, obesity, high LDL, living a sedentary lifestyle. Those are the risk factors. Whereas the warning signs are really what is going to indicate that someone's having that heart attack or having suicidal ideation or, or in harm in that exact moment. So heart attack warning signs would be um, chest pain, shortness of breath, cold sweats, nausea. And for suicide, um, we may hear some of the things that you just said. The warning signs could be dramatic changes in mood or increasing risk behaviors like substance use or hopelessness or conversationally speaking about wanting to harm oneself. Um, when training individuals to do the tools on screening and doing safety plans and things like that, I think why that differentiation is important is because oftentimes we lump those two together, warning signs and risk factors, and don't provide psychoeducation to, to both staff that I supervise as well as the clients as to what's going to help me 
uh, you know, reduce risk factor over time, or, um, you know, what's gonna, what risk factors exist that increase my likelihood, but with warning signs, what can I do in the moment when a warning sign, I can see it and have to do something about it. So I, I hope that helps a little bit to, for some people on the call to kind of clarify in their mind what those two would be for suicidality. Definitely, thank you for that. Um, risk factors can also be environmental in nature. Um, this is going to be anything in their environment or within their, um, within their situation that has recently changed or may increase their, their ability to harm themselves. Access to lethal means, interpersonal conflict, legal involvement, isolation again. Um, those are some examples of environmental risks that exist. And then history, an individual's history, their family history, um, their ACE scores. If you're not familiar with that, I can provide some additional information if, you, if you'd like to reach out, post the training. Um, but an individual with a higher ACE score is going to um, it also have a higher risk of suicide. Protective factors, on the other hand, are going to be kind of the, the opposite of that. Our protective factors are, um, pardon me, our protective factors are things that are going to be more helpful. There are things that are going to support us and help us want to stay. These can be internal, such as someone's religion, resilience, life satisfaction, or external, such as employment, responsibility or family obligations. My biggest takeaway when discussing protective factors with someone, and I think most of us naturally do this when talking with someone who, who may be expressing suicidal thoughts, is that you don't want to impress upon anyone else what you think their protective factors should be. In other words, don't assign value to items or, or concepts to another individual that should in your mind, be reasons why they want to, to live. Um, for example, if someone's pet is, is a huge reason, you know, for them living and remaining, um, you know, a caretaker of, the, of that pet, you mentioned that, but aren't aware, uh, maybe since your last session with this client that something had happened to their pet, um, you might just be bringing up an additional trigger for them. Um, you always want to be cautious in regards to assigning another individual their protective factors and really just leave it open-ended when you're discussing that with them. So when you're starting to have those discussions and looking at warning signs, risk factors, protective factors, I cannot understate the role of empathy. And if we were doing a lifetime audience training, I can ask each one of you, you know, why is empathy difficult to show for those that express suicidal thought or ideation? Um, and we need to start to understand empathy as an important and effective tool for ultimately managing suicidality. And usually people say, well, uh, you know, if I show empathy, that means I'm going to endorse the act of suicide. And no, that is not what it means. What showing empathy does is show that we're going to be non-judgmental. We are willing to listen and be a person that they can come to ultimately when they need help. So 
uh, empathy and showing that has been a, a key and really fundamental in decreasing depressive symptoms or uh, suicidality. And I, I think we have to be willing to show that level of compassion, that life is tough for that person. However, it does not mean that we are endorsing that suicide is okay. We are just acknowledging the thoughts and feelings and emotions they are presenting to us. And with that, so that's a framework for how we can help. Um, and I think a couple of these bullet points too that are important to note for people in, is that suicide attempt is a treatable symptom. What does that mean? It, it means that we can work to reduce a level of risk for someone that's experiencing suicide by one, ensuring that they're safe, identifying the warning signs that we went over, and then engaging them in some level of support or treatment for something that, as Megan said, might be contextual, relationship concerns, things like that. There's other stuff going on, and this is just a, a serious symptom of that. Um, educating yourself, which is why you're attending this training today, as well as there are so many gatekeeper trainings that are available if you wanted to look up uh, to attend that are designed to aid anyone who comes in contact with someone who's at increase suicide risk in the community to be able to respond and identify. So those are really great options. Um, uh, one that I absolutely wanna go over on the screen is that knowing suicide may remain an option. And I do not wanna seem like I'm taking emotions away from the topic. Um, and it's extremely difficult to hear that sometimes. But Suicide is a realistic thought for those individuals, and it may not be eliminated fully. They may still think of it when they're under stress. So it's really important um, that we're able to have someone increase their toolbox of skills like mindfulness or exercise or art or grounding techniques so that that thought that, that is going to come up will be a passing or fleeting thought and not something that they act upon. Um, I, I also believe that one on this slide, you know, knows, knowing it's a, that the attempt may be for attention um, is important to me because I hear it a ton. I hear it from family members, uh, professionals, counselors that I work with. Well, they're just doing that for attention. My usual and typical response will be then, okay, we better find a way and a healthy way to get them attention. So instead of dismissing that, um, really understanding that they're sharing valuable information to you. And we can use that as an opportunity, an opportunity to meet a need that's otherwise not being met. So, you know, self-care, I think it's self-explanatory, being able to recharge your battery to work, to best work with a heavy topic is super important. Um, and many of these things are meant for everyone on this slide, ultimately. Uh, anyone can benefit from this approach or framework. I do wanna dive a little bit into professionals for a second. Um, and I know how scary this topic is for so many people. It, it may mean our mo own emotions come into play. We may be in denial that someone, oh, you may, you know, you're telling me this, but you would never do it. Um, you really didn't say it, or anger. Oh my goodness, it's 3.30 on a Friday. You were with me all day and just told me, oh, we're getting ready to go to school. I'm dropping you off. And now you're telling me about suicide. These things are said. Our emotions and response are normal, but it's really important, if, if anything, again, in this training, to be aware that our response matters. And we wanna provide a response um, that's powerful to them because they chose us to tell. 
And that general philosophy is what extends to professionals. I know we think we want specific interventions and we want um, extremely specific tools that are gonna stop that suicidality right then and there. And those treatment options exist. Evidence-based treatments like CBT, DBT, and CAMS, um, which is the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, which is available. Um, CAMS Cares is, you can get that training if you want specific evidence-based for suicide, absolutely. But what I'm gonna say is that we wanna address suicidality from a framework of that empathy, of feeling comfortable to have a conversation and not just being guided by our emotions of, oh, I wanna avoid this topic or anger or denial. As professionals, we have to check those things at the door and realize this is really important to talk about. Um, assessing for that risk and safety because keeping someone safe is our goal at the end of the day until you can't anymore. Uh, making specific crisis prevention or safety plans. Um, making sure coping skills match with what's happening. So not just your general coping skills that would be like, you know, listening to music or something like that. Um, I know that professionals do struggle with this topic and, and many times uh, our clients or fam family members also have an idea of what works well for them. Ask them, they are the expert in what's gonna work for them. And so many times we just write, Breathe, listen to music. Whenever I'm in crisis or angry and someone tells me, Jason, calm down, it, it doesn't exactly work. Um, I need a roadmap. I need the steps. I need to know how to breathe. I need to know what songs to listen to. And I need it to be specific um, and realistic. It's not gonna be take a break or a walk if I, every time I walk out of my classroom, I get in trouble. So please remember to ask the individual and when you're coming up with interventions, make sure they're aware of what being mindful or breathing means. So, so again, you know, in the previous slide, we talked about what you can do to help. This is what families can do, but really it's, it's just for anyone. Never be afraid to ask the questions um, or to seek someone out for someone to help ask those questions. Follow your gut, always listen. Even if someone has made suicidal threats several times in the past, this could be the time that they have the plan and intent and really need your help. There was an experiment done in the past in which several participants were asked to place their feet in an ice bath, um, very uncomfortable, painful um, experience. They were timed as far as how long they could keep their feet in that ice bath. The next step of that experiment was to add another individual to the room. The same person puts their feet back in the ice water and the outcome was that that's adding that second person, not with them saying a word or doing anything, but just being present in the room, double the length of time that someone could endure that difficult or painful experience of the icy water what this demonstrates and, and always kind of um, makes me feel encouraged about is that you don't have to have the perfect words. You don't always even have to say anything at all, but just being present with another individual and supporting them, being there um, with them during their difficult or painful experience can have a significant impact on their life and their ability to stay with us. Jason and I work with adolescents on a daily basis. I know that parents have a difficult job raising teenagers um, 
I can tell you how many parents, or I can't tell you how many parents have made statements, um, you know, when their adolescent might be making suicidal threats of, they say this all the time, or as Jason mentioned, they're doing this for attention. Um, as someone who's worked with adolescents for 12 years, I can understand these expressions. I can understand where the parents are coming from. Um, I can understand that the parents are frustrated and I think we all experience some of that. Um, however, I do challenge you to treat that every time, like the first time you're hearing your child state, state that. Um, even if they are doing it for attention, we need to give them that attention. It might be the only way they know how to communicate, um, you know, just kind of reiterating some of that, that message. Um, everyone wants to be heard. We also have to be aware of the fact that while we are the helpers and we are the ones helping another individual in that moment, we also need to seek support. And as I mentioned, that crisis text line number earlier, that is available to anyone. Again, it is to text home to 741741. Even as a helper, it is okay for you to experience um, the need to have support and to talk to someone. So I just want to address, I saw a question pop up in regards to the obtaining clinical supervision. And I think that's a huge, a great point to make for professionals. Um, if our goal ultimately with the topic of suicide is a willingness to talk about it, a comfortability around it, uh, not wanting to avoid it and having our own personal opinions or feelings coming into that therapeutic space or that safe space in um, then clinical supervision is a must on the topic. I think that really helps to work on it. And then not only through clinical supervision, but also encouraging someone to, to provide, be provided with their own therapy or support um, as a professional. So you can work through some of that own stuff while also understanding the clinical interventions that you can utilize um, in that space to help someone. So great question, and I think that's such a huge point to make. And sometimes we overlook that piece of supervision and the importance. And with suicidality, it is so important. So thank you. Um, I think ending on means restriction, I'm looking at the time, so I am very aware of where we're at. And there's so much information. We could really talk in days, but I, I want to touch on this because I think um, this, is, this is something that is vital. And there are trainings, lethal uh, means restriction trainings that are free and available as well online that if you were interested in the topic. But um, uh, with all of this, I wanna say that restricting means and uh, taking away lethal uh, things like firearms or medications or sharp objects, sharps that someone is going to use means that uh, research shows nine out of 10 times, if those are not available, lethal means aren't available, someone goes on to live and survive and does not die by suicide. So that means in thinking about it, just removing lethal means helps that person. So if we can lock up or remove firearms from the home, if we can uh, have a medication cabinet that's locked at all times or pills that are in a daily pill counter and disposed and prescription drugs that we have in a cabinet that are disposed of properly and not just in the home of old prescriptions, it means that by restricting those, we are ultimately saving lives. Um, so thinking about that, if those aren't available to someone and that's their plan and they're searching out those and they can't get them, even if they choose something less lethal, they have survived 
and they are here and we can provide them with support and help. I think that I'm so impassioned by this one because if we just do this and create a safe environment for the person, it means we are saving lives. And, and that is something that we're probably all here for in helping someone by remove these items so they don't utilize them. Even if they injure themselves or attempt, which we don't want, it means they're here to get help and support. So, uh, I mean, uh, you know, ultimately with the complexity of everything going on, we can present on this topic for hours. Megan and I, you know, we're, we're right against the time limit here. Um, my hope from all of this today is that we can understand that we need to work together to have a conversation, collaborate, I can't say that word enough, use that other person and be aware enough to identify what's going on with someone so we have the comfort level to ask the right questions. Um, so I kind of wanted to leave with this idea that we're, we're pretty clear from research and it shows that if we talk about suicide with someone that's experiencing it, it will not increase risk. What may increase that risk is not talking about suicide and continuing to keep it hidden or not regarded as a real option the person's thinking about. So having that communication alone will save lives. Thank you. Thank you. Me? Well, I'm not talking yet. Hello. Can you see me? Yay. Thank you guys so, so, so much um, for the presentation. It was awesome. Um, I'm just going to wrap things up really quick and then we um, can answer. There's just a few questions on there, but I know some people have to go. So I'm just going to switch to my PowerPoint really quick. Um, thank you to everybody who joined us today. Um, you should have a survey pop up after you close out of this. If you are on a phone, it won't. I also dropped the survey in the chat, so you should be able to have access to it there as well. Even if you don't need a CEU credit, you can still fill out that survey for us. We love feedback and we are doing a raffle for a $50 gift card at the end of the series. So you do have a chance. And something that is new this time is some people have asked just for a certificate of completion or attendance. So when you are filling out that survey under that CEU, it will ask if you just want a, a certificate of completion. So if you would like that for your work, um, you know, please make sure that you check that box. Um, our upcoming webinar, so next Thursday, we are having one on school violence. And then our final one will be recognizing and addressing signs of substance abuse in your college age son or daughter, because they will be coming home, hopefully, um, for Thanksgiving soon. And just a reminder that this presentation has been recorded. So if you know somebody that could benefit from this, this will be up on our website by the end of the day. So you can um, share that with those people. We are in our final two weeks of our fundraiser. So some of you have asked what our Your Choice uh, handbook was. So this is our handbook. It's a 40 page handbook with all kinds of um, drug and alcohol information. Um, if you want to be entered into the raffle, uh, it's $25 for the handbook and you could win up to $4,000 in prizes and the drawing is next Friday already. 
And again, thank you to our sponsors, Waukesha County Health and Human Services and Oconomowoc Area Foundation, and of course, Rosecrans for providing the speakers today, um, the CEU credits and their continued uh, support of your choice. So for those of you who have to leave, thank you so much for joining us. If you have questions, um, we will hang around for a little bit longer so that we can get those answered. Okay, so I have um, a few here. How does suicide by depression differ from what they call assisted suicide for those who are terminally ill and want to pass on? Can you repeat the beginning part of that? Sure, how does suicide by depression differ okay. from assisted suicide? Yeah, so uh, this, this is a super complex and I don't it think is. we'll be able to answer all of right. this because there, there is legal ramifications for right. some of that um, assisted, because for those assisted suicide, you know, what is typically known um, or, or assistant death would be another person, physician, healthcare person provides um, or helps with that death. And I think what we were really talking about today um, can absolutely go into someone's thought pattern and process in their risk factors. Like if they are, you know, we know older individuals are at higher risk. Um, that population is at higher risk. Uh, Megan pointed out that um, those with medical conditions or health conditions are at higher risk. So I and think chronic pain as well. Yeah, yeah. chronic pain is at oh, higher definitely. risk. 100%. So for me, I just think uh, instead of going too much into that particular topic, it's, under, it's important to understand um, and be aware that it's an option for individuals who fall into that, those categories. And suicide is something that we still need to ask about and people are thinking about, um, no matter if it's because of depression, anxiety, right. maybe they don't even have a mental health diagnosis. Um, and that it's just this relationship loss or it's now this emerging chronic pain or, or something. So just be able to ask that, ask about it. Be willing to talk to that person and help them and support them. Great, thank you. Um, for that text line, Megan, it, yes. do you text hello or home? Home, and that is 741741. However, I do know that Really, if you text anything, it will be received and, and responded to. Okay, I just wanna make sure. Sure. Um, somebody asked if you guys were presenting at a conference coming, IL, well, Illinois SOSLD event coming up. It, I'm not. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> is that, is that we, anything you're we, doing? we have presented places and we do continue right. to get, provide this presentation as well as uh, been at different uh, forums and, and um, conference type settings, but right. I am not at that particular one, no. Right, okay. somebody was just asking. No, that's okay. awesome. I think that's all really the questions I have. Um, there was one, um, what is the best way to approach sooner rather than later a situation where someone says to you that they're contemplating suicide? So what's the best way to approach that for somebody who has like no, you know, knowledge base? Um, for me, I think that the, 
the real, you know, quick response is to, again, just engage with that individual. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Um, one thing that we do know is that talking about suicide does not increase um, the incident, uh, incidence of attempt. Um, we know that listening and, and providing that support can definitely help save lives. At the same time, as you mentioned, if that's someone who maybe doesn't have that professional knowledge base or, or things like that, I would absolutely seek support um, for yourself. And in the event of, of someone, you know, in, engaging in the act, I don't think we can say enough the importance of calling 911, you know, if, if it is um, to that level of intent. I think that's probably the most important key would be if someone's presenting and we don't have a knowledge base, then we want to react in a way that we're not shutting someone down or making them feel shamed or guilty. And I think you alluded to that. Also, the next thing is we want to flip in our brain that we're thinking about safety. So does that person feel safe? Asking those questions. Do you feel safe right now? What can, what can help you make you know, us make the environment safe and collaborate with them because maybe they'll say, yeah, I'm really thinking about suicide. And, you know, I was thinking about like the knives in the kitchen or this, then we can work together. Okay. Would you be willing to, for us to lock those away for the night? Would that be safe? Can they sleep in a bedroom with you or sleep out in a common area? So there are different safety needs that can be assessed right away. And that's our goal. If someone's like, nope, I'm not going to be safe, then absolutely. 911, any crisis response in your area, uh, mobile crisis response or any responders, that's where the EDs or ERs would become important in saying, hey, I'm going to go have professionals assess. And then always follow up with looking to find someone resources. Great. Okay, one more. Um, do you recommend the OK app? I'm not familiar with OK um, as an app. Um, Jason, is that one you've worked with? I, I do not know the OK app. Is it a social media outlet? I guess I'm not familiar enough. Um, I, I do know that there's um, Calm, which is an app that provides you know um, interventions, meditation, and, and coping skills, um, which is um, highly recommended. Um, so that again, that's Calm. C-A-L-M, um, and I know it's a, a free-based app, but then also you can add, you know, um, a subscription to, to have additional features, but I'm not familiar with OK. I can't really speak on that. Okay. Um, do you recommend any specific assessment tools to screen for suicide? I think with any screening tools, and uh, Megan said it a little bit earlier, if you're a school or you're anyone screening for it, what you wanna absolutely be aware of is that you have something to do with that information. I've seen so many times we screen every student in a school, but then we don't have counselors or someone available when, um, you know, they you get say positive that, responses. Yeah, or, yeah, their responses indicate so that's another important piece. I would research what you need for your population or tool. Um, the Columbia suicide risk uh, is one that's highly used a lot. Um, so that is just one of a couple and many that are used, I think for your specific population and making sure it's indicated 
for the group you're using it for to actually give you the information you want? Do you want them to know like, oh, they have depressive symptoms or are they actively suicidal? Because you're going to have to do something with that information. You can't let it sit when it means safety. Right. Um, okay, it looks like I have one more coming in. Um, you talk about terminology and framing the thought behind it. I've been trying to challenge people to change it to from attention seeking to connection seeking behavior. And I, that's great. I love it because um, that's ultimately, like we said, when when we identify someone as attention seeking with this negative connotation, what it really means is there's a need that's not being met by someone that we need to try to figure out to bridge the gap, make a connection, and meet that need. So I think that's very appropriate. Yeah, connection seeking. Yeah, I like it. Yes. All right. Uh, that is all I got for questions in here. Well, thank you so much, Jason and Megan, for that fantastic overview and those helpful tips. And thank you, Ashley, for facilitating those questions at the end. As I said in the beginning, if you feel you are in crisis, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It is a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-273-TALK, which is 1-800-273-8255. And as always, if you feel like you are in an emergency or in immediate need of assistance, call 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. If you have enjoyed this webinar uh, recording and would like to view the webinar with the PowerPoint, you can do so at our website at www.yourchoiceprevention.org backslash webinars. You can also access many resources on our website, uh, free resources, parent resources, different things. And so I would encourage you to check that out. Thank you so much for listening. 